As I mentioned earlier, it's really time to uh, bring this matter that we've been talking about to a close for now. It would be valuable, I know, to continue to keep tracing the influence of the occult and drugs through the Old Testament scriptures and into the New, but we've been on this for a long time, and I think we need to probe other important subjects as well. So we begin to talk about what is the end game involved here as we begin to close this down. And the issue becomes, how do we draw this down and end it with some useful conclusions? And I want to start with a view toward the end game and what we mean by that. Um, what exactly is the enemy's end in his relentless attack on God and on his creation? What's, what's the purpose behind it? We observed last time that the Apostle Paul very carefully describes the organization of what we would term the occult world in Ephesians chapter 6. And I think most here this afternoon are familiar with that. Maybe uh, even the children are quite familiar with it because it's such a, a well-known passage. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now the schemes of the enemy are such that one can't safely hope to stand against those schemes without being fully armed. That's part of what Paul teaches here. And we teach that to children in Sunday school. We emphasize it throughout the life and the teaching of the church. These attacks are not orchestrated and carried out by flesh and blood, but by rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers who reign in and over this present darkness. Just even reflecting on that somewhat uh, stretches us a bit, right? What, what is this? What are, what are these rulers? What is this, these authorities? And, and, and what is the cosmic power being referred here to that, that reigns over the present darkness? And what we're ultimately battling, we are told here, are spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And that's the, 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 the nature of the battle. Evil angels and forces, as uh, Bain says, and uh, he's written one of the great commentaries on Ephesians. Bain says, these evil angels, angels and forces have a part and a stake in the frame of this present world, in ordering, or rather disordering, states, kingdoms, cultures, and all things. That's an interesting way that Bain puts it, that, that these spiritual powers have a vested interest, even a stake, in disrupting and disordering states, kingdoms, 
cultures, churches, individual families, individuals, all things. They have a stake in it. He goes on to say, these are not empty titles that we come across here in Ephesians 6, but given them from a powerful action they have in the hearts of men by God's permission. And they're granted limited powers to be sure, but they're still great powers from uh, what we would call the human perspective. And by them, they undermine what is good and they propagate what is evil. That's their design. That's their purpose. That's where they put their energy. That's where they spend their time, as it were. Um, Undermining what is good and propagating what is evil. And the fallen world is Satan's kingdom. And it's naive to believe that he and, and those who serve him will not engage in everything needful to sustain that kingdom for as long as possible. Whatever is required, whatever will do the job, they will engage in to keep that kingdom uh, as it is. Now, I would recommend to you Bain's uh, further comments and reflections on this passage because they really deserve careful reading. And you can find his commentary at Google Books, and it's there for free, and you can look at it and read it. But for today, we simply want to observe that all this that's described here by the Apostle Paul and is fleshed out a little bit by Bain raises a question. And the question is, does it, wouldn't it seem strange to have such a complex organization with no agenda? no defined purpose, no real end game in view. would be odd. And we think about what we were talking about earlier this morning. Um, the church is bringing together all that was necessary to establish heritage and then all that we do to sustain it. And if somebody came along and said, well, what's your mission? We said, well, we don't really have one. We just putting all this money into this, we're putting all this work into this, but we don't really have any particular aim. We're just doing it because it's there to do. That would be very peculiar. And I think we have to say it would be peculiar in this case as well. We observed last week that when Satan reported to the Lord that he was going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, We are not to imagine him as just idly occupying his time, that he's just sort of wandering about, and if something catches his attention, he goes, oh, that's that's interesting, but he was just walking around with no purpose. Now, it's clear from the way it's expressed to us here that he was spying, that he was searching out, he was inquiring, observing, and carefully considering what was before him. And with a purpose, with a design, not just idly. Satan's going to and fro in the earth, says Carlyle, is a discoursing about everything, a disputing upon every point and person. He does, as it were, debate every man's condition as he goes, and every man's estate, every man's temper, and every man's calling, or woman's calling, He considers what is fittest to be done against him or her and how he may assault him or her 
with the greatest advantage. So he's observing these things. He doesn't have them all in sight at once like God does, but he's going to and fro on the earth and and looking where this this work can be done, this work of um, tearing down what is good and propagating what is evil. And the enemy is a relentless spy in this way. It's, It's a constant job in which he never rests. And it's unsound, knowing that we have such an enemy, to give him any advantage because you can be certain that he will take advantage of it. Every time, every incident, not necessarily. But where he sees it, where he comes upon it, he will take advantage of it. But to what end? That's the question. And when it comes to defining his aim and purpose beyond opposing all righteousness, godly men really differ widely in what that is. And this difference of opinion requires a certain open-mindedness and liberty on our part. When we think, well, what is the end of all this going to be? What is it going to look like? We want to grant liberty. We want to have an open-mindedness in regard to it. But if that open-mindedness and liberty leads to a complacency towards the enemy or to doubts concerning how active he really is or even suspicions that he may have no agenda at all, that's both foolish and dangerous. We know because Christ has told us that he's the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. He is the prince who has power. Um, Christ explains that to us. He employs signs and he uses lying wonders. He can appear as an angel of light and he has the potential to get the advantage of us. He's the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And we know that he goes about seeking victims to devour and that he has at his service evil angels and wicked men and women and children. And all of that should be enough to make us cautious and watchful, whatever we perceive the end game to be. Now, we've seen in our study that it is not only logical that he and his servants would be involved in the plague of drugs that's infecting our society on every level right now, but that there's proof of the fact Proof that can't be denied, though it's often ignored. And every place I've taken you in in revealing that truth, I've only given you snippets of the whole evidence that's available in all those circumstances. Um, Even as to last week, we were talking about human trafficking. The part that the occult and drugs play in human trafficking is, is not hidden. It's open. And it's freely discussed, particularly in other countries. Not so much in our country, but in other countries it's freely discussed. The point is that no society, no government, will ever successfully overcome the influence and the damage of drugs unless they are willing first to acknowledge that there's a spiritual element in the battle. They're not willing to acknowledge that they'll never be successful in overcoming it. 
Now, as I mentioned, godly scholars differ widely in their interpretations of Satan's ultimate aims and how they may relate to the end of the age. But this is clear. If he has an end game in which he intends to do all within his power to gain some sort of more immediate control over humanity by deceit and violence and chaos, is it hard to imagine a more potent weapon than mind-altering drugs? If that's his end game, is, can you imagine something that would help that along more than mind-altering drugs? And I would add that if his desire is nothing more than to ruin freedom, liberty, and the blessing that's come to the world through God's grace and mercy to us as a nation, and I say that knowing that there are many who think that we're the curse of the world, but that's a topic for another time. But if Satan had no other agenda than to bring us to our knees, then again, can you think of a more potent weapon that's available than mind-altering drugs to achieve that purpose? And there isn't one, and that's why you find them so tightly intertwined with the occult, not only now, but through the ages, because it is such an effective tool. Now, that's all we have to say about the end game as we close down. But we do want to talk a little bit about the battle itself. In Ephesians, where Paul calls on all believers, he says in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then in verse 11, he says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he, of course, lists the armor. But as he lists that armor, as you come to the end of that list, he stresses that the key thing in this combat is prayer. Prayer. He says in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the day of evil, and having done all, to stand. And then in verse 18, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. And that description there, all prayer, I said it as one word. Because it's good to think of it as a compound word. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer. Think of it as something that this is all the different forms of prayer all the time. That's what Paul is calling for here, for those who are to be engaged in this battle. And it's interesting that he talks about the various pieces of armor, but then he emphasizes the fact that each of those pieces needs to be put on with prayer, needs to be attended with all prayer all the time. All the time. Because it is the essential part of our being able to carry ourselves in this battle. And it's John Calvin, who had his own struggles with the enemy, we know, who suggests that many believers don't know what they're about in this matter of putting on the armor of God with all prayer all the time. 
He says, some stand out unarmored and vulnerable in the field of battle. Others armor up, but then they follow the same course. And I can illustrate this pretty well for you. If this were a bulletproof pulpit and somebody came in and started firing at this bulletproof pulpit, would it be wise for me to draw my firearm and step over here and start shooting? That wouldn't be very smart, would it? What would be the smart thing to do? To remain, right, to remain behind the bulletproof pulpit, right? That would be the, the appropriate thing to do. And what Calvin is referring to here, and I'm putting this in you know, common uh, today uh, language, but what he's saying is that God's people so often in their closet pray and they say, Lord, I'm going to go out now and live for you and contend for you. And then they leave the closet and leave prayer. They go out into the battle armed, but without the protection of the Lord that comes from prayer, that makes that armor actually function as a protection for us. That we assume that if we pray that the Lord will bless us, that we can then leave prayer and believe we'll be blessed. And Calvin says that gets people into trouble. Because they are relying on something they did rather than on something they're doing. We are not called on here to be praying while we are dressing and then leave it off when we go to fight or while we're struggling or even while we're triumphing. Tendency is to pray for protection and wisdom and then to go and do while we need to be praying while we're engaged and even afterwards. You have this enemy, see? And let's say that you strap on your armor and you achieve some spiritual victory and then you get to the other side after the triumph and you sort of plant your sword and you take off your helmet and you sigh with relief and First thing that comes to mind is, I did pretty well, didn't I? I did pretty well. And the enemy's right there to say, oh, yes, you did do well. You, you overcame me. You really did. And then pride builds up, and then what happens? We become tripped up or worse by the enemy. We need to be praying while we're engaged, and we need to be praying after we are engaged. We're good at praying after we're engaged when we fail, when things don't go well, and then we're, we're really quick to call upon the Lord then, but we need to be doing it constantly is what Calvin was saying Paul is calling for here. Calvin pictures it as if we possess the stronghold, which was impregnable, but when called into battle, we leave it, convinced that its protections will follow us instead of calling for them to be with us. David said in Psalm 62, in verse 2, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress 
I will not be greatly shaken. In verses 6 to 8, David writes, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. I don't know if you can see it there or not, but I originally was going to say here that David is saying the same thing Paul's saying, but I realized what I should be saying is Paul is saying the same thing David's saying. David is saying that this is our rock, this is our protection, and we should be pouring our hearts out all the time to him, calling on him for the grace and the strength that we need for the battle of every day and every hour of that day. And David and Paul agree in that. Trust in the Lord at all times and pour out your heart before him. Now this is, as we said a few weeks ago, a battle, beloved, that has to be fought on our knees. Our nation, and, our nation and culture won't be saved from these things by policy or programs. The government, beloved, is really helpless in a struggle like this. It can't raise enough money to succeed in this battle. It can't craft enough adequate laws. It can't deploy an army that can successfully fight a spiritual battle. Governments can't do that. And this isn't just a a, a political issue. It's not just a social issue. It is a spiritual one. We're sending DEA agents in against people who are making sacrifices to Satan to be empowered to be successful. And we're sending them with warrants and petitions and things like that to stop them. And and the agents themselves know somewhat of the frightening nature of this. And it's, it's a battle that is not going to be won by policy. And it's an easy thing for all of us, I think, to fall prey to the temptation and believe that things have simply gotten worse because the wrong people are running things or the wrong policies are being implemented. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that policies and leadership are only effective or as effective as God makes them. That's what we say we believe. That's what the Bible teaches. And yet we are still tempted at times to think, if we can just get the right policy in place, everything will be better. And yet haven't you in your lifetime, those of you who are adults, seen where the right policy was in place and it didn't do any good at all? Haven't you seen that? I know I have in my lifetime. All the laws and rules were there, but it just took no effect. It got no traction because those things get their effectiveness from the Lord. And if the Lord is not blessing those policies, 
and those programs and those leaders, then no matter what they do, they cannot succeed. In Psalm 33, in verse 17, David says, The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Just think about those words. The, the war horse. If you're going to think about a horse, that's the one you want, right? The war horse. The one that isn't skittish in the sound of battle. The one that's strong and the one that's able to fight its way through. And what is David saying? It's not any, of any value. It won't save you in the day of battle. Then in verse 18, he says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that they may deliver their soul from death, that, excuse me, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The scripture is filled with examples of this reality, beloved. The armies of Israel overcome more powerful foes by the Lord's hands. And they fall prey to weaker opponents when they defy God. The prisons of Jerusalem and Asia Minor can't hold Peter and Paul. They can't contain them. When it comes to prayer and supplication, says Calvin, we must not go to it coldly nor slightly and as it were for courtesy's sake but that we must be touched to the quick to continue as it, as he will add anon after, and to hold on rightly without ceasing at any time. The hope of seeing the tide truly turning is concerted, committed prayer, beloved. Whether it's in regard to individuals people we know and love who have fallen prey to the onslaught of drugs in one way or another, their deliverance is going to come by prayer, not by policy, not by program, not by plan, but by prayer. Or whether our burden is the nation and our culture, it's going to be delivered through prayer, not through these other things. Just imagine for a moment what God might do if Christ's church just stopped and said, we are going to pray until we see God move. We are going to be in prayer. As the people of God, until we see, not sporadically, not here and there, but in a concerted effort, the people of God in this country saying, today, we are going to pray, we're going to start praying, and we're going to keep praying until we see a change in these things. The problem is I think we're still all too comfortable and we still feel too safe to heed a call like that. In Romans 12, Paul says in verse 11, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. In verse 12, he says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Oh, there is finally the triumph. And I'm just going to say a word about that. 
Our confidence is in the Lord. You know, despite the apparent strength and the intimidating gestures of the enemy, as Luther says, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fell him. We don't know what we'll see in our day, whether a great revival will come that will sweep across our land and across the world at large, or maybe even a return to a period of like the Dark Ages, where every man, woman, and child does what is right in his or her own eyes. We don't know whether it'll be a time when the gospel will have free reign, the word of God is seen to be sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold, or a time of real difficulty when people will be even more than they are now, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and so on, as Paul describes the problem. Whatever may be the case, we know that the triumph of Christ over Satan has already taken place. We're simply waiting for the moment when it becomes manifest. When the last of the elect are gathered in and the enemy will be finally and utterly defeated and crushed. In the notes there I have some verses that talk about that and I'll encourage you to read them and read through them maybe this afternoon. But that's our hope. That's our final hope. There is a triumph coming and it's the triumph of our Savior. He is going to come in power and great glory. And all these things that so trouble us now will be subdued by him. And they will no longer enter our lives. Because nothing that will hurt or harm will be found in the kingdom that Christ has prepared for us. And if he's going to prepare a place for us, he will come again and receive us to himself. That where he is, we may be too. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise that we have of the great triumph in these things at the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, Lord, we pray that we may be faithful soldiers in the fight. And Lord, we pray that we may have no trust in ourselves or in man, but our trust will be in you and you alone. This is a battle we cannot win without prayer. We pray, Lord, that as a prayerful people, you will make us even more prayerful. That we may be known as the people who spend their time in all prayer, serving their Lord. These things we ask in Jesus' precious name.